Hello, I'm Zach Adams, and welcome to our inaugural episode of Driverless, where we discuss the ongoing evolution of law and policy surrounding the autonomous revolution. Today is the first of what will become our news days, where I speak with attorneys here at Tucker Ellis to break down recent news and discuss its implication. Today's topic will be the recently published Automated Vehicles 3.0, Preparing for the Future of Transportation, which was released by the Department of Transportation on October 4th. AV 3.0 is a guidance document that the DOT put out following AV 2.0 in September 2017. With me for our first ever Newsday are two of our attorneys to help me break down AV 3.0. John Fesco is a partner in our litigation department, and Todd Northman is a partner in our business department. John and Todd, welcome to the show. Hi, happy to be here. Glad to be here. All right, guys, let's just jump straight into this. So, uh, you know, in reviewing AV 3.0, as we just said, was kind of just pushed out by the uh, DOT. What did you guys think was the best thing about AV 3.0? Todd, if you want to go first. I loved the fact that the DOT has embraced multi-modality. I mean, it's just, it is the reality that the way autonomy works is that it cuts across the different types of transportation. And it really makes a lot of sense that the DOT would capitalize on those efficiencies and enhance its learning. So I think that's the best thing they did. But overall, the document itself is very strong. Uh, For me, I think that the best thing about it is it's no one-size-fits-all approach, uh, both in terms of the technology itself and remaining technology neutral is the the buzz phrase that they continually use, and when it comes to regulation, be it federal, state, municipal, uh, they're, they're clearly open to adopting whatever is in the best interest of the technology advancing at this time. For sure. And I think part of that is, you know, they don't know which technology is going to bear the most fruit later on, right? I mean, they're still kind of walking that middle ground almost necessarily to kind of figure out which technology is going to prevail and which technology makes the most sense before kind of going all in with, we're going to really put all of our support behind this group. Yeah. And, and in keeping with that, too, they're, they're clearly in favor of removing whatever barriers the industry approaches them with, Um kind of remains to be seen how easy or successful they'll be at doing that, but there's a clear intent to get out of the way uh, wherever possible and necessary. And honestly, that's what I thought was the best thing. I thought the best thing about this document was the the pace and the support of innovation, right? The, you know, we're all in on this. We want to be a leader in the world in this field. And to that end, let us know how we can help you, right? They're going to the AV company saying, we're happy to, you know, if there's a regulation in place that we need to take care of, Get us on the phone. Let's talk it out. And I think that multimodality kind of, that's something I didn't even think was going to be, I mean, including that just as another way to kind of embrace this new frontier of mobility. I just think that's incredible. Yeah. Overall, it is amazing how each document, each version of this document has become even more pro-autonomy. If you look back to the 1.0, it was putting its toe in the water. And now we have that full-throated support for the industry, which I think is reflective of the United States leadership in this transportation revolution. Okay. So obviously the best things, you know, I think none of us have that hot of takes. I think all of like us would agree. Those are all great parts of the document. What did you guys think was missing here? For me, and, and this is a guidance document, so I don't know how much this was intended to be in there in the first place. But, uh, for me, what's missing is the, the specifics of how to proceed from here. Uh, as a, for instance, Zach, we both agreed, and I'm sure Todd, you would too, that one of the great things was removing barriers. And it's great to say that in theory, if you've got 
something about uh, the existing regulations, whether they're put out by NHTSA or whomever, if this doesn't make sense as we remove humans from the vehicles, tell us and we'll get rid of it. That's great to say, but they don't really lay out how that's going to happen. Uh, I don't think it's going to be as simple, to your point, Zach, as call us up on the phone and we'll just get it off the books right there. Sure, um, not. Yeah. Uh, these are typically things that take a long time to put into place. And even if you speed up getting rid of them, it's still probably going to be a lot longer than the industry would like to see. Especially an industry that's known for being fast-paced, agile, pivoting a lot. Uh, I think you're right. I think there's going to be some frustration in the speed that we see in Silicon Valley meets the quote, fast speed in Washington, D.C., those aren't the same thing. Yeah, and Todd and I were discussing the other day, remind me how long it, on average, it takes to put forth regulations in this area? Yeah, no, it's seven to 10 years typically for the DOT to enable or to enact a rule. So rulemaking is not going to be the answer in this industry. Yeah. yeah. And, and to that point, how many of these companies were around seven to 10 years okay. ago? And I don't think anybody's going to be that thrilled to hear, hey, fantastic news, everybody. We've sped our process up to the point that instead of 10 years, it's only going to be one year. So much faster than it was before, which would be true, but I don't think anybody would be that excited to hear that it's still going to take a year to eliminate that barrier. Yeah. Uh, Todd, what did you think was missing? You know, to go back to the specifics, I think one point that really cries out to be addressed and just is not in here is cybersecurity. There are a couple different mentions, but it, the document only at a very high level punts on both cybersecurity and privacy and defers to other agencies within the government. And given what we've seen happening outside of the AV industry, that's really striking. In this political climate, I think we're going to see a lot of pushback. I expect that the one of the biggest comments we're going to see during this comment period is going to be on that absence of privacy. And so by absence of privacy, I mean, the document doesn't really go to address it. What are some things you would have liked to have seen it address as far as cybersecurity goes? Is there anything specifically that you were like, I really thought they would say this? Or did you just kind of think the lack of any guidance was the most alarming part? You've really asked the million dollar question. And I think it's why it's not in there is I don't know what you would say. And I, overall, that's a theme here in the document. And I think it is a strength of the document. When DOT or NHTSA does not know what to say, they shut up. And <laughs> what a remarkable thing for any organization to do. So while I criticize that and I think it is missing, I don't know what you can say about it other than to shrug and say, yes, this is very important. It needs to be solved. This is an issue that has existed prior to autonomy. You know, there are these great news stories, great in air quotes, of how hackers have gone in and attacked. I think it was a Jeep Grand Cherokee, disabled it on the freeway near Silicon Valley, uh, Mountain View, California, I think, and just left it to prove their point that these vehicles are hackable. So that's something that's in the back of the mind, I think, of many of the industry leaders already. But, you know, again, I think the public is looking for leadership on this issue. So while I don't have the answers, someone needs to figure it out. And to your point, I think a, a great transition there is, you know, this is something that the public's always been fearful of with anything automated, right? the rise of the machines, the someone's going to hack into my computer and instead of going to the grocery store, it's going to take me away, you know? So I think that makes this even more salient. It makes it even more important and it's more striking to your point that it hasn't been addressed at all. And, and certainly throughout the document, there is a clear intent of 
of the DOT to change public perception on autonomous vehicles. They constantly talk about providing education to the public, be it the and, and this they view as the job of private industry, state governments, everybody working together to accomplish this. So they know it's an issue. Uh, and it's a little bit ironic then that the cybersecurity, which for so many people is one of their biggest reasons for having a fear of using these vehicles, uh, it's it's not without any irony that they would kind of punt on that issue. Yeah, I mean, how many people do we know that go around, uh, you know, with tape over the webcam of their laptops or on their iPads or their cell phones? <laughs> I may <laughs> resemble that remark. There you go. Exactly. So uh, it is even more striking. I mean, the thing I thought was really missing from this, you know, they talk about we're gonna we're gonna pull down these barriers. We're gonna anything we can do to help you. They don't really cite a lot of what their authority is. And, and again, maybe that's because you know, like you said, Todd, there's the 70, 10 year process. There's nothing saying here's the thing we're relying on that's gonna be our kind of fail safe. This is gonna be our way to kind of push people out of the way, push barriers out of the way, and make sure we can speed along innovation. And uh, I think once they get tested, it'll be really interesting to see how they react. Well, and some of that remains to be seen what the authority is. They they can harken back to laws enacted in the sixties for their for NHTSA's general ability to enact federal motor vehicle safety standards and, and they can rely on that in the absence of anything else. And I, I think it fits. But Congress has also already passed, or at least the House has already passed, the Self Drive Act. Uh, and it remains to be seen whether that will make its way through the entirety of Congress and if so, um, how will authority change? Who's going to step in to fill any perceived void, whether or not one actually exists? So uh, you're right, um, they, but what authority anybody has today might not be true a week or a month from now. Right. But I think that the federal legislation is the 800-pound gorilla because we do have the House Act that was passed unanimously. The Senate has been rumored to take it up really as their lame dunks, ducks to see if they can get that passed. And that's going to be important to watch because that will be a game changer. Much of what the DOT was able to accomplish would be undone by the proposed legislation. But I say that recognizing that most of the auto manufacturers sent representatives to Congress last spring to testify in favor of the federal legislation. What they're looking for is someone to take leadership and tell them what the goalposts are. So that's something we're going to need to watch. You can bet that the uh, lobbying for the AV group is going to be uh, very well funded and very well represented. Um, all right, so let's talk about kind of winners and losers. Who do you guys think gained the most from AV3? I think we're really looking at commercial trucking as one of the biggest winners out of this. If you go back to that federal legislation that we were talking about, the Congress specifically was afraid to attack that issue. And here you've got the DOT, which again, this is the multimodality. That's what I love about this, is they're saying, we can't ignore this issue. We need to realize that there is a shortage of truckers available and that autonomy is coming. We've seen this with Tesla announcing it. Volvo's put out some really interesting concepts. It makes even more sense, however special AV will be for commercial or for passenger vehicles, makes even more sense in most commercial realms. So that's an important signal, and that leaves them, in my mind, the biggest winner out of anyone. And I think, you know, to that point with the trucking industry, a lot of people have already kind of said that, you know, trucking is really analogous to kind of how planes work, right? The idea that, you know, you need maybe a driver for the takeoff and the landing, you need someone to kind of 
get you out of the uh, you know, the loading dock back into the next one. But a lot of the driving you know can be done on quote unquote autopilot. And I think you're right that this is a huge win for them because they already had this amazing uh, again analogy to you know the way that planes work. And this document just furthers their cause. I think you're absolutely right. Well, and I'll touch on Todd's point real quick first, and to to further that, especially knowing that there's a, a shortage of drivers out there, it, this pro- would provide an opportunity for a lot of those folks to do first mile, last mile work. Um, and I've got to believe if you're a trucker and you have more opportunities to get paid and stay relatively close to your home, uh, that'd be much more attractive than doing those those long hauls. Well, and making the most of a limited resource, right? And that's you know, yeah. definitely not a bad thing. And, and there's clear indications throughout the document. This isn't just with respect to truckers, but in general, the Department of Transportation wants to address how the introduction of autonomous vehicles will shift U.S. jobs. What jobs will it eliminate and planning for what jobs can be created by it, too, so that we're not just you know, to use the commercial trucker, um, we're not just taking the job from somebody, but we're also recognizing where could that person who might have less work driving on the highways still have opportunities, be it first mile, last mile, be it the maintenance of these new vehicles, whatever. Right. And that's a great point. I think something that I didn't expect to be in here, and maybe this is something we can kind of talk about. I didn't expect there to be a full on recognition of, we know this is going to change our workforce, but the emphasis that it's going to change it, it's not going to diminish it. And I think they did a great job of saying we need to start thinking about how we're training these people now and how we're creating new jobs now so that when the shift happens, we're not saying they're kind of looking at we're displacing all of our taxi drivers, all of our Uber drivers, all, you know, et cetera. Uh, I thought the DOT was really proactive in that sense. Right. I think and we see some of this in the background with Secretary Chow, who's now secretary of the DOT, but was secretary of labor under President Bush. And that background, that sensitivity to these issues, I think, really is highlighted by that. And I think, Zach, you make an excellent point, because the nice thing about the timing of this is these losses of jobs haven't happened yet. We're actually studying this, thinking about this problem while there's still time to do it. That is remarkable and praiseworthy. So I agree, Zach. I was taken by surprise, but by pleasant surprise that they've signaled that this is something they want to study because that's all we can do at this point. That's right. And, and so, John, uh, kind of circling back, who do you think gained the most? So... I think you could make a case that a lot of people won on this from private industry to state and local governments, especially echoing the no one size fits all approach of the document. Um, but one thing that was interesting to me is, is I think human drivers won out on this too. Uh, there's a, a statements in the document that say we have, we are reinforcing our commitment to the ability of people and the right of people to drive their own vehicles. Look out for a new amendment. Sure, sure. Uh, and, but, you know, we joke about it, but I think it's something that's absolutely true and an impediment that the industry would run into eventually if you tried to stop people from being able to drive their own cars, be it recreationally or, or just as a means of getting about their daily lives. You're going to run into a large segment of the population that autom- that absolutely believes that this is a fundamental right of theirs, and they don't want to see it trampled on. Even if they're still going to use an automated vehicle, they want to know that they have the right to drive a car uh, should they choose. So I think that getting behind that is is really going to help the public education and the public acceptance of these in general. See, and, and this is kind of where I disagree. I, I think that 
one, I think that human drivers were a huge winner, but I think that fact that, you know, the DOTs come out and said there is a right to drive, uh, I think that might actually impede progress because I think there are certain people, there's a certain demographic that's going to say, you said yourself, I've got a right to drive. I don't need to know about any of this. I don't want to do any of this, you know? And, and that's something I, I worry about uh, kind of going forward is what do those conversations look like when those people are sitting there saying, hey, I mean, that's great that you're doing that and it might be faster, might be better, might be better for the you know, environment and cheaper and all that, but I've got a right to drive and so every day I'm going to back out without looking each way and if one of your automated cars runs into me, that's their fault. You know, It doesn't matter that I was driving like a lunatic. I have a right to drive and right to be on the road. Well, and I think, I mean, but there's a bigger context to this. And what I loved about that, and I honestly say that put a smile on my face when I read this, which how often does that happen when you're reading a government-issued document? Because it is exactly right. The reality is we are not going to take the right to drive away from individuals. It isn't pragmatic um, within the timeline, but certainly if you go outside the urban environment, go to farms, that sort of thing, you're never going to see totally autonomous vehicles that make sense there given their expense. So, you know, again, I just think that was a wonderful nod to the reality here. Yeah. When you look at how these vehicles are being developed from, from two standpoints, first on the SAE level scale, which we could debate the use the continued usefulness of that scale but uh, assuming it's it's here it, the vehicles are being developed in tandem at different levels and with cars that have none of that functionality none of that autonomous functionality built into them so it's just a fact that for the next several decades at least these vehicles are going to be on the road with human drivers even if we didn't want them to be that's just going to happen so Acknowledging it in the document, I think, helps, and how they're being developed geographically as well. To, Todd, to your point, we don't have the, the capability to map rural areas. We really don't have the resources to map them in the same way that we could map the city of San Francisco or Manhattan or wherever. So it's just that that's the reality we live in, so we might as well just acknowledge it and roll with that. Moreover, I, I think it's going to help people, contrary to, to you, Zach, because if you start to tell people, and I don't, I don't even think that this is an American idea so much as a people idea, if you start to tell people what they need to do, you're always going to get a big segment of the population that's just going to push back because they don't like being told what to do. Right. And I think, you know, I think there's a difference between telling people what they need to do and not coming out and saying you don't need to do it. I think there's a difference in there and there's a little gray area. And again, I, I you know, like Todd, I, I did get a smile too. I thought it was, it was great. Uh, it's just one of those things. I wonder how much that's going to empower people to kind of disregard the educational component of the document. Yeah, and I, I, some people will, and that's their right, according to this document. That's their right to disregard it. Uh, but I think those people will be less challenged by the notion of these vehicles in general if they are comfortable that they don't have to adopt the technology. They can still, you know, if you if you tell people. You've, you've got to prepare for this and you've got to get ready for this thing to drive you around. Those people are suddenly going to be vocally against it as opposed to now just saying, I can ignore it. Well, and to sharpen that point, though, and I probably time to move on, but I just I think it's an important signal to the industry as well, because one of the things we hear a lot of is this would be a lot easier if we could remove human drivers. 
and that's just not going to happen. So again, that's part of what I mean when I say that's the reality is to the extent people wish cast scenarios that are not plausible, I think it harms the industry. So I love that clear signal to the industry, get over it. You are going to be driving with human drivers in parallel. So you need to develop your systems that way as opposed to just assuming that these problems will go away in some short period of time. And uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think kind of forcing the manufacturers to consider that human drivers are going to be one of the biggest obstacles they're going to face is is important. And just kind of round out this top before we leave, you know, I I thought the uh, the person or the group that gained the most from this was uh, to me, obviously, the the AV companies. I mean, this was as clear of a uh, encouragement as I think the federal government's ever going to give an industry as far as we are behind you 100 percent. Let us know whatever it takes. I mean, almost to the point of kind of being deferential, right? Almost saying, you know, you're the ones that are going to create this technology. You're the ones that are going to educate the public. And, you know, that was just really striking to me how deferential they were, especially at a time where we've seen uh, some of these automated vehicles kind of starting to have accidents with people, accidents with their cars. Um, there have been some high profile, you know, newsworthy stuff. But I thought that was really interesting that the federal government, instead of, you know, walking the line and saying, you know, we're supporting you, but we need to consider this and this was, I mean, I read it as just an emphatic, keep on going, let us know how we can help. That's very well put. I withdraw my answer and adopt your positions, Zach, because I think <laughs> I'm missing the forest for the trees. That's 100% right. It is a big push to the industry, and that can't be lost in some of the details. All right, let's, uh, before we get out of here, let's let's talk about who lost the most. Uh, and, and I'll go first, just because I think it's, it's kind of salient. Uh, John, you mentioned something as far as winners. I, I kind of disagree again. Uh, you know, I think the state governments and the local governments are, are kind of being hamstrung here. I think that you know, the federal government puts out this document saying, you know, we're all in on this innovation. We're all in uh, behind UAV companies. Let us know what we can do. And I don't know that there's been enough power or enough uh, reserved authority for the state and local governments to kind of preserve their autonomy I use ironically, right? Pun intended. And negotiating with these AV companies as far as testing goes, as far as um, you know, partnerships go, I feel like they're almost kind of put to the, uh, you know, all, all the leverage is being given to these AV companies to come in and say, hey, the federal government's behind us. What's your problem? Don't make us get on the phone with big bad DOT and, you know, we'll take care of it. I think that's going to be true up to a certain level. You know, if a state stepped out and said, we don't want AVs on our roads, then I think they're going to run into some problems. Um, but a combination of, number one, hearkening back to what we said before about the realistic speed at which uh, anything involving the, I don't want to pick on the federal government, but most governments in general would move, I don't think it's going to be as simple as I'm going to call up DOT and they're going to, you're going to get a call by 3 p.m. this afternoon telling you to uh, change what you're doing. Um, and also... Keeping with that no one-size-fits-all, I think that there is going to be some deference within reason as to how different states and cities are allowed to approach this issue based on what works for them. And we've, we've discussed this in the past. Some of that is necessary. The existence of a Pittsburgh left um, and how different regions drive means you probably should be able to give some, some deference to the cities and the states for the regulations that they adopt. And I think it will be interesting – on that point, because I do feel like the state and local governments lost here, 
it'll be interesting to see if federal legislation does come through, what kind of authority do they give to local governments in determining that? Because as you said, it isn't a one size fits all. Driving is different in different parts of the country. And how will the federal legislation remain uh, authoritative, but yet agile enough to allow that deference, but also mandate certain requirements? Uh, it, it'll be interesting. Then you get into issues of like preemption and all that. But um, it'll be really interesting to see how they can preserve that. But for now, I think the state and local governments, they might have lost here. Well, and I think some of it is already separated when you look at how cars in general are regulated today. For obvious reasons, the at the federal level, certain standards of how cars are manufactured, what's required to be in them, um, that's done at a federal level. And that makes sense because you don't want to have a car that's legal to drive in Ohio. And then once you cross that state line, Indiana, all of a sudden you could get arrested or pulled over just for having that vehicle. Uh, whereas other issues like licensing and things like that are reserved to the states, and, and that makes sense too. Very well could see a similar bifurcation happen in the AV space as well. And I think uh, you know, from what we saw with lobbyists this past spring in front of Congress, that is definitely the way they're trying to approach this, is to maintain that status quo. And by they, I mean both DOT and state and local governments. And this was an issue that was very heavily focused on as that language was crafted in both the Avstart and the Self-Drive Act. So it isn't going to happen inadvertently, but it is an interesting issue. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I totally agree. It, it, it'll, it's going to have to be intentional. Um, but Todd, who, who did you think kind of lost the most here? You know, the people who have been most vocal are the safety advocates. And I think while this policy and the previous two iterations of the guidelines all dug into this and the DOT and NHTSA both say safety is our number one priority, there really is nothing in this document that furthers safety and that needs to be said and understood i think we can talk about socially why that must be true there simply isn't anything you can do while permitting the testing to go so you've got those contradictory goals of the dot both to promote the industry but to have it conducted in a safe way but i think if we look at other industries say the drug industry with the FDA's regulatory process or the FAA and how you go about certifying an aircraft. And those are entirely different regulatory approaches. And that's really the only way that you could bake into this oversight something that's more safe than what we have. But it needs to be said that what we have is self-certification for the manufacturers. And that is an astonishing grant of authority and trust to the automotive industry. And, and I think this kind of goes to what both of us were saying earlier. You know, again, this this isn't even just a support and encouragement. It, it's almost outright deference. It's almost saying we trust you so much, AV company, that you guys go ahead and tell us it's safe. We believe you. You know, and 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 to your point, shocking, shocking a government document. Uh, you know, that's purporting to develop the implementation of these vehicles is kind of saying. Safety is kind of going to take the back seat for now. Right. And just to sharpen that point, and I want to give John a chance to weigh in, but you know, I do want to point to what NHTSA did with a self-driving bus down in Babcock Ranch, Florida, where they jumped in and pro prohibited them from going forward just this fall because they viewed them as exceeding the authority that had been granted and really misusing the exemption that they had been given to permit that operations. 
All right, so John, what do you think about the lack of safety guidance here? Uh, it's it's going to be very interesting moving forward. Put my litigator hat on for a minute. It, it sounds great for private industry to get this uh, deference, as Zach put it. Um, it's great for innovation. It may not be great for litigation later, uh, especially when you've got a clear incentive among these private companies to be the first to market uh, with these automated vehicles. That doesn't always match up with the sort of safety first reptile theory that you would undoubtedly hear uh, from a plaintiff's lawyer when litigation inevitably starts up. So, and, and in a lot of industries, it's been useful for companies to rely on their compliance with federal regulations as, in some cases, a preemption argument or at the very least a, a, an affirmative defense or an argument to make a trial. If that's removed from this case because they got so much deference, uh, it, it may be great for the short term and not necessarily great for the long term. Well, to that point, too, I think from a litigation standpoint, you look at the self-certification how scary does that get if you're sued, right? Because you don't, it's your point, you don't have these federal guidelines, but you don't have really any guidelines to say, well, we were meeting this checkpoint, we did this to make sure we were safe. Instead, you're kind of just saying like, eh, we thought it was pretty good. We thought it was yeah, pretty safe. Yeah, and it, it's not without precedent. Uh, I mean, SAE in and of itself are industry standards that, that they came up with and they've adopted and said, this is what we're going to do. So it's not impossible, um, but... I, to me, it's just that push and pull between an emphasis on safety and a clear desire to be first to market that could possibly be problematic when people have to start turning over documents for litigation five, 10 years from now. Right. And I think the point that Todd and I both are kind of saying is that push and pull seems like a lot of push in the innovation and the innovation you know, side of things and kind of pulling away emphasis from the safety. Is, I mean, Todd, you agree, right? Yeah. No, I think you've said it. Much better than I did. Yeah. Well, and especially these are companies that, number one, didn't exist that long ago. So there's not a lot of lessons learned. It's not as though we're talking about a medical device company that has been doing this for the last 50 years. With and, a huge legal department behind them. Yeah. And, and company policies in place about we put the, you know, in that case, it would be patient safety. And here it would be public safety first, those sorts of things to have checks you're probably dealing with a lot of people who aren't used to operating in a space where public safety is necessarily at issue. That's not typically what you think about. Life and death things aren't typically what you think about in terms of, let's pick Facebook, for instance. How, yeah. how long did it take for Facebook to, to come out to have an overwhelming success to become the company that it is today? And only now you're starting to see folks show up and have to testify in front of Congress. And I think, uh, you know, speaking of Facebook, I think, wasn't Mark Zuckerberg that said, move fast and break things, which I think would be the worst slogan for an AV company, yeah. right? Right. But to pick up on John's point, um, you know, I think that's one of the interesting trends we have in this industry, because we talk about it as the AV industry. But in fact, what you have are Waymo, perhaps Apple with its Project Titan, some of these non-traditional AV companies. But you also, big auto is heavily represented. GM, I mean, you can't get older than that. Ford has been very active. If you go to Europe, you've got a lot of this. So some of the industry laggards are certainly among the big auto, but also some of the leaders. So there is a culture of safety. And I think that is one of the signals that the DOT is sending is 
we have reviewed the culture of safety, and I don't know if you've read the book by Larry Burns, but it's called Autonomy. It came out earlier this year, and it is a history of the autonomous vehicle development from GM. And it is fascinating because he comes in and really helps you understand how that safety culture is part and parcel of big auto, particularly in Detroit, in Japan, and throughout Europe. Yeah, I think that the success of of those sorts of synergies will really happen company by company. Are you a company that just invested a billion dollars into this startup, and after that you're kind of hands off, but we can still say that we're in this space because we made that investment? Or are you taking active steps to see what lessons big auto or more traditional auto has learned over its long history, um, ups and downs, and how can those be integrated with this brand new startup that you just purchased where none of those people have any idea about, uh, you know, they're coming from a complete software background potentially and they're, you know. I think you nailed it right there too, Uh, just the different background, right? Traditionally, the people making cars, people you know developing these vehicles were engineers, right? They, how does this, how do I get these parts to you know perform this function? Now, most of the people in this space are going to be uh, software engineers, and it's a radically different background to come from, especially whenever you're looking at potential liability questions with regard to safety and even touching back on like cybersecurity, like you were talking, Todd. And to be clear, obviously, autonomous vehicles are not just a software and that's it there's brand new technology that and and hardware that's associated and indeed is the only thing that makes it possible um point is just i think that there are lessons that your traditional or older auto manufacturers could be um, teaching and integrating with their newer counterparts in this space Uh, and the companies that do that the best may find themselves the best situated moving forward um, when they've got to face litigation or public perception in general on these issues. And that person who is creating the, the next iteration of, of a LIDAR may have never had to consult or think about, what does a federal motor vehicle safety standard say on this? And should I be keeping that in the back of my mind as I'm, as I'm doing these things? Or does one exist that we need to get rid of? Or does one not exist that we need to create? Those sorts of issues. And that's where I, I think that those synergies could really... And I think you're right because, I mean, a lot of the technology that's being used to make these cars automated, right, LIDAR, radar, you know, things like that, they have so many other use uses, right, that they're not used to having to think about what NHTSA is going to say or, you know, what the federal law on motor vehicles is going to jump in. I mean, I think you're 100% right. And that's where I think we're at a fascinating time in the industry because if you step back and look at really January 2018 going forward, there have been an astonishing number of industry tie-ups, particularly this fall where you've got Ford jumping in and working with a variety of different folks like Baidu in China, or you've got Waymo that's sourcing its vehicles, literally sourcing its vehicles from Jaguar, from Chrysler. So there really is this hybrid of the high-tech folks from Silicon Valley who are relying on the traditional automakers to provide this. And so I think the hope would be that those two will synthesize their values and we're going to have even safer results from that tie-up. 
John, who, who did you think lost here? Uh, kind of picking up on what Todd said, uh, to me, it's anybody who is hoping for sweeping federal le- legislation to, quote unquote, save us on this issue. Um, I think back to Ralph Nader's editorial in the Wall Street Journal, I think it was back in August of this year, um, and talking about how things were essentially moving too fast and we needed the federal government to step in and, and right the ship. Uh, I wouldn't expect that to happen after reading this document. At least, certainly I wouldn't expect the Department of Transportation to do it. To Todd's point, who knows what happens with uh, you know some potential lame duck senators and what they do with federal legislation. But I would not expect sweeping federal legislation to happen at any point soon after reading this document. Right. In the U.S. or anywhere globally. I mean, that's an important context to have in mind is this is occurring in Singapore, throughout Europe, in China. So when we talk about sort of the competitiveness and maintaining and supporting the industry, I think it is reasonable for the DOT to step back and say, if we want to maintain the lead here for the United States, we have to support the industry. Uh, you know, before we get out of here, is there anything else you guys want to add in as closing thoughts? One theme that I, and I've actually written an article about this, but I think one of the infirmities of the current structure is we don't have a mechanism for gathering information. And so whatever the context in which rules or laws are going to be made are going to be made from a limited information standpoint. So one of the things I'd love to see the DOT supporting and NHTSA taking the lead on is the collection of data. It doesn't have to be particularized. We can respect privacy, all of that, the anonymized data collecting so we can understand how these systems systems are actually working. And I think that would go a long way to promoting safety, but then also hitting the DOT's other goal of making the public understand better how these operate. Because the safety case is what comes through very clearly. We talk about the 40,000 automobile fatalities annually and how the AV systems are going to prevent that. But for people to believe that, we're going to have to have the information to prove that. And that theme actually goes back to the discussion the two of you were having on tort litigation and what a manufacturer is going to do to defend themselves. And they're going to need that information as well so they can demonstrate that their product is safer than the alternative. Yeah, and and it won't just be defensive. It could be offensive, too. These vehicles aren't just going to hit other cars. Other cars are going to hit them. And... Uh, they'll have to make a case that they're owed damages in, in that case. But for me, what I'm most interested to see come from this is, is that public education piece that you touched on, Todd, um, both from an information gathering standpoint, but also at a time when we're very, very close uh, to the introduction and the commercialization, really, of level four vehicles. Obviously, they're on the roads, they're being tested um, in level two or three Tesla just updated its autopilot and is now saying that that's level three, but you could, if you have the money, you could buy one of those today, Um, is to see at a time when 60-70% of the public today would say that they don't trust autonomous vehicles enough to ride in one, that's going to have to be fixed before we really see the public excited about rolling out these vehicles. So uh, it's, it's mentioned in this document. 
it suggested ways that local, state, federal, private industry, all those can come together to educate the public, but the next step is to actually get out there and do it and start to change perception. That's interesting to me. You know, How is the data going to be used? Not so much when will it start being collected and being collected uniform, uniformly, but I mean, data, you know, as lawyers, I mean, all of us know you, you can use the same spreadsheet in three different ways, you know, depending on what side you're on. And it's going to be interesting to see how we decide what you, what information we need to gather from these companies, how we um, make that uniform. Because I, I could see, you know, companies saying, well, I don't want to put all, you know, for all my disengagements, uh, I don't want to put the reason behind it because then someone else is going to stand up there and say, this company knew that they had a problem with, you know, roundabouts because they had blank amount of disengagements for, you know, every roundabout they encountered. And, and I think that's going to be a problem is deciding, you know, what information should be gathered and how are we going to let that information be used. Guys, that's going to do it for our inaugural episode of Driverless. Please subscribe for future episodes wherever you get your podcast from and rate and review us on iTunes. If you had feedback or comments, you can reach us at driverless at We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.